0: The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. Here it is, folks. Feed your gut and crack open that coconut. It's time for Event or Else, the comic book show where I go through most every major Marvel and DC event, one issue at a time, one episode at a time, because if I don't, then somebody else is going to do it. And let's face it, they're probably going to do it better. Hey, I'm your host, my name is Steven, and I'm back once again to creep up behind you and push you off the cliff. That is Crisis on Infinite Earths. In this episode, we're looking at issue number eight, which is entitled A Flash of Lightning. This issue was published by DC Comics with a cover date of November of 1985, and it was written by Marv Wolfman with pencils by George Perez, inks by Jerry Ordway, letters by John Costanza, and the colors were by Anthony Tollin. The issue opens somewhere in the antimatter universe, where the anti-monitor ship, races through space. Inside, Psycho Pirate is having his own crisis while the Flash hangs motionless from an energy wall. Psycho Pirate fears that the Anti-Monitor no longer has any use for him, and therefore once he returns, if he returns, well, he's gonna kill old Double P. His only hope is that the Anti-Monitor died in the same explosion that killed Supergirl. But if he didn't, well... Hasta la vista. Baby. Psycho Pirate asks the Flash, who appears to be unconscious, to join him against the Anti-Monitor. But then, before that line of thought can go any further, the Anti-Monitor shows up, and he's wearing an all-new, very slick suit of armor. And he tells Psycho Pirate not to fear. He will not die. He may still be useful. Meanwhile, on the other dimensional world of Apocalypse, Dasad watches the Anti-Monitor ship on a view screen and asks his master Darkseid for a bit of advice on how they might stop him. Darkseid, however, is all like, we're going to do two things, jack and squat. We're just going to chill here, bide our time, and see who wins. Whoever that may be is going to get all kinds of exhausted, making them easy for me to defeat. In the meantime, on Oa, we find that the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps are just fine. The Lanterns want to fight, but the Guardians go off to deliberate in private. In the 30th century, on Earth 4, the Legion of Superheroes are keeping tabs on the whole multiple Earths merging into one situation, noting that the merging has stopped. However, Brainiac 5, driven by the death of Supergirl, is determined to fix the issue of the overlapping Earths. On Earth-1 in the 20th century, Firestorm is hanging with his lady, Flamebird, when he's contacted by Vixen. She has located T.O. Morrow, the man who had originally designed the Red Tornado's body, and she's taking him to the JLA satellite to help repair Red Tornado, and she wants Firestorm there, you know, just in case. They arrive on the satellite to find Martian Manhunter and Cyborg already there. The Atom is inside Red Tornado's body, Given a look-see at what might be wrong, and while watching the monitor feed of the Atom's vision scan, Morrow reveals that the super-advanced technology that makes up the insides of Red Tornado is not at all what he'd constructed. In the meantime, Jon Stewart, the Green Lantern, finds Blue Devil on a beach in Los Angeles, Getting a the little sun, and he asks him for his help with Red Tornado, and soon the two are on the satellite with the others. Morrow severs Red Tornado's head from his body, triggering an explosion that rips through the satellite. Morrow then runs for it, and Blue Devil gives chase. He rounds a corner to find that Morrow has vanished, and in his place is some sort of energy gateway, which Blue Devil is suddenly pulled into, only to find himself teleported aboard the Omega Men ship in the Vagan system. Meanwhile, on Quard, the Anti Monitor oversees the preparation of a giant antimatter cannon, which, when completed, he will use to wipe out the five remaining positive matter universes. The Flash, however, manages to free himself, and in doing so, he snatches up Psycho Pirate and, after beating him up a bit, runs at super speed throughout the complex bringing Psycho-Pirate with him and using the villain's powers to turn the Thunderers of Quard against the Anti-Monitor. With the Anti-Monitor now very much distracted, the Flash makes his way into the antimatter cannon to find the cannon's power source, a giant globe of antimatter which has already begun to drain his energy. But he's the Flash and he knows he has to do something. And that something is to run really fast around the globe, using the flow of antimatter to jam that stuff right back into the machine, knowing that in the end, he may not survive. He then begins to phase through different points in time, seeing Wally, the Joker, and Batman until it's all just a bit too much as the antimatter sucks the life out of him and destroys his body so completely that all that remains is his costume and his ring. His sacrifice was not in vain, however, as in his death throes, the cannon is destroyed, which saves billions of lives across the multiverse. Meanwhile, as the issue ends, somewhere outside of the universe, out beyond time and space, the specter senses all that's going on in the multiverse, and he ain't happy. And that's the end of another issue, which means it's time for the top three things to dwell on. Except, nah, let's talk about the Flash instead. See, it's fitting that the Barry Allen Flash gave his life to save the multiverse. After all, he's the one that discovered the multiverse in the first place, which happened all the way back in 1961. And so I thought it might be fun to talk a bit about that issue. But first, here's a couple of things you'll wanna know before we get into it. At the time of the crisis, there were two men running around and calling themselves The Flash. Jay Garrick came first when, back in 1939, Flash Comics No. 1 hit the newsstands. In the issue, Jay, who's a student at Midwestern University, inhales the gases from hard water, which gives him super speed. Then came Barry Allen, who, in 1956, made his debut in DC Showcase Number 4, where he worked as a police scientist and enjoyed reading the comic book adventures of a guy named Jay Garrick, a super speedster named The Flash. Barry Allen is hanging out in his lab one stormy night when he's doused by a big bunch of chemicals as they are struck by lightning. This is what gives him super speed, and he takes on the name Flash from the comic book of his favorite superhero. Now that we're all up to speed, pun very much intended, let's take a quick look at the issue that gave us our first glimpse of the multiverse, Flash number 123, which has a cover date of September 1961. The story is entitled The Flash of Two Worlds, and it was written by Gardner Fox. Keep that name in your back pocket because it's gonna come up again later. Pencils on this issue were by Carmine Infantino, inks were by Joe Gaella, colors by Carl Gafford, and the letters were by Gaspar Saladino. When the magician that Iris West hired to perform at a charity event for orphans is a no-show, The Flash takes his place and dazzles the children with feats of speed. However, in the middle of the act, The Flash vanishes, appearing on the outskirts of an unfamiliar city. He soon discovers that he has somehow managed to transport himself to Keystone City, home of Jay Garrick, the Flash from the comics that Barry loved to read. And so, doing what I think any of us would do, Barry looks Jay up in the phone book, learns where his fictional hero lives, and goes off to pay him a visit. The two seem to get along rather well, considering the circumstances, and Jay confesses that while he may be retired as the Flash, he's been thinking of a comeback due to three daring and unusual thefts that had been committed recently. After describing the three crimes to Barry, the two decide to join forces and solve the crimes. The thefts, we soon learn, were carried out by three of Jay's old foes, the Fiddler, the Shade, and the Thinker, who have teamed up to cash in. The two flashes split up, and Jay finds himself going head-to-head with the thinker, who quickly gets the better of the aging speedster. Meanwhile, Barry tangles with the shade, but he, too, is soundly trounced. Meeting up later at Jay's house to report their failures, they decide to work together, figuring they'd be more effective as a team. It's not long before the two encounter the Fiddler in his amazing-looking fiddle car, and after recreating the scene from the cover where they save a man from a falling steel girder, they find the Fiddler in the Keystone City Museum doing what he does best. Fiddlin'! In the meantime, the Thinker and the Shade arrive to warn the Fiddler about the two flashes, only to discover that the Fiddler's got it handled. Both Flashes are under his spell, dancing and stealing jewels for the criminal. It's then, as the villains are about to escape with the jewels and their freedom, that the Flashes strike, taking out all three 'er ne'er-do-wells with supersonic speed. But how did they accomplish this amazing feat, you may be asking yourself. After all, the Fiddler did have both of them under his spell. It's actually quite simple. At one point, The fiddler told them, never mind those little individual gems, just bring me the big jeweled treasures. And that, it seems, was his downfall. You see, the fiddler wasn't specific about what he wanted the two of them to do with all those little gems that they'd gathered, and so the flashes placed those little gems into their ears, which distorted the pitch of the music just enough so that it no longer had any effect on them. After all, even though they were forced to obey the Fiddler, the villain never ordered the two not to try and escape. And so, with Keystone City safe once more, the two Flashes say their goodbyes, and Barry returns to his Earth with the intent of looking up Gardner Fox. That's the guy who wrote those original Flash comics, and he wants to tell his story to the writer, thinking that maybe Gardner Fox will write the whole thing up, in a comic book, wink, and then of course, 20 some odd years later, the multiverse falls to the anti-monitor. Or does it? You know, it's odd to think that this one fun little lighthearted story in The Flash could lead to such death and destruction, and yet, it really does. From the seeds of Flash 123 would come other stories set in the Earth-2 universe, which is the universe where Jay Garrick and the other Golden Age characters lived. So many stories were told on Earth 2, that according to Marv Wolfman, readers began to confuse the continuity from both Earth's 1 and 2, and the only way to fix all that was to blow it up and start over. Which, eh, looking back at it, did they really do that? Not really. I mean, I'm no scholar of DC history, but based on some of the books I'm reading today, it's nearly 40 years later and they still don't quite have a handle on the multiverse. In fact, there may be more than one multiverse by this point. Is that right? I mean, good Lord. If anything, DC Comics continuity is more confusing today than it was before the crisis. It just seems like the only thing they accomplished was making things more difficult for future writers. But hey, that's not really why I'm here. So how about I just wrap it all up and tell you what I thought of issue number eight of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which despite my tiny tirade on DC continuity, I actually quite enjoyed. Crisis number eight was like a bit of light in the dark. The couple of issues that led up to this one made me feel like all hope was lost. But now, thanks to Barry's sacrifice, there's hope that some of our heroes just might survive this whole thing. Now, I'm not sure why the anti-monitor needed a costume change in this issue, But honestly, there's a big part of me that feels like George Perez just didn't want to draw the anti-monitor much at that point due to how intricate the old suit was. Not that the new one isn't detailed. There just seemed to be fewer bits and bobs and smaller bits and lines and all that junk on it. Beyond that, Darkseid sitting out the crisis (laughs) made me smile. It's like he saw what was going on and said, nah, I'm good. Wake me up when it's over. I also rather enjoyed the crazed bug-eyed thunderer that the Flash turned against the Anti-Monitor. Just his face and the bug eyes. I mean, I can't explain it. I just know what I like. And of course, beyond all of that, we are now left to wonder, what's the Anti-Monitor's next move? And frankly, now that the universes have stopped merging and are just overlapping, how are the heroes gonna put them back? And good Lord, what's up with the Spectre? I mean, who's he pissed off at? Let's just hope we get the answers to these questions next time in issue number 9 of Crisis on Infinite Earth's War Zone. Seriously though, why does the Spectre have to be so cranky all the time? Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash or and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show where I talk about all the nerdy type things I don't have time to talk about in all my other podcast episodes. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share the podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. <laughs> right, there's a <your> snort. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that may go at the end of the song. Better.